And we now come to the preaching of God's word. And so I invite you to take your copy of God's word and open to Romans chapter four. Romans chapter four. It's an amazing thing that Paul will spend not just what he's already spent on the matter of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but we'll spend all of chapter four and then all of chapter five addressing this critically important doctrine. And so this is clearly a high priority in God's estimation. We're gonna be in verses one to eight. And so look with me at it. Let's read it to begin with. Romans four, starting in verse one. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Paul has been unpacking the gospel of God and his declaration began with the bad news that the whole world, including the Jew, is under sin, both its penalty and its power. But then in verses 21 to 26 of chapter three, he finally declares the good news, that a right standing before God is received as a gift by grace entirely through faith in Jesus Christ, apart from any contribution from works. And far from this being some new and novel development, Romans 3.21 indicates that this reality is witnessed to in the Old Testament, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, anchoring Paul's proclamation of God's gospel in the Old Testament scriptures. And to support that contention, Paul will now appeal to the supreme Old Testament example to the one whom the Jews proudly claimed as their father, to their forefather, Abraham, devoting all of chapter four to the significance of Abraham for justification by grace alone and through faith alone. So why does Paul appeal to Abraham as the supreme example? He does so for two reasons. One, because he's the clearest example of justification by faith in the Old Testament. He believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And given his stature within the context of the Old Testament, he provides undeniable proof that one is justified by grace alone through faith alone. And two, because he proves that everyone is justified the exact same way, not only was Abraham justified long before the giving of the law? He was justified apart from receiving the sign of circumcision. And so he's proof that both Jews and Gentiles are justified apart from both. Otherwise, you'd have to become a Jew to be justified. And if that were the case, then God would only be the God of the Jews. In fact, that's the, the immediate link of this portion of scripture to the previous paragraph, the faulty notion that God is the God of Jews only. And Paul refutes that notion in verses 29 and 30 of chapter three, that there is one God and that he justifies both Jew and Gentile the exact same way through faith. And the other immediate link revolves around the matter of boasting. As Paul will show that not even Abraham is permitted to boast since he too was justified by grace. And so the thrust of Paul's appeal to Abraham is this. If there was ever a man who could have secured justification by works, if there was ever a man to be justified according to what he has done 
it was Abraham. But if not even Abraham could be justified by works, then no one can be justified by works. If Abraham isn't justified by works, then no one is. Or stated in the reverse, if Abraham is justified through faith, then everyone is justified through faith. Whatever is true for Abraham is true for everyone. That's why Paul appeals to Abraham as the supreme example of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So here's what we're going to see. We're going to see one, that justification comes through faith in verses one to three. Two, that justification comes by grace in verses four and five. And three, that justification comes with forgiveness in verses six through eight. That forgiveness and justification are essentially synonymous. So no first, justification comes through faith. Justification comes through faith. Look at verse one. Paul writes, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh is found? That's a fair question. What did Abraham find to be true? The one who is the forefather of the Jews, what did he find to be the case? And then Paul poses this, verse two, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. And that was the Jews' contention. I mean, not only did they believe that that Abraham had reason to boast, they actually boasted in Abraham. They praised Abraham for his deeds of righteousness, his works. And so they believed Abraham was justified by works, and if so, then he had every reason to boast. Boasting would not have been excluded in any way in Abraham's case. And again, the Jews had an incredibly high view of Abraham. One source says, quote, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life, unquote. Another claim that Abraham didn't sin against God. And still another that no one, quote, has been found like him in glory. And so Abraham is raised up by the Jew as being one who is virtually sinless. And then you add to that that he also performed some amazing works, the greatest of which was being willing to sacrifice his own son, Isaac, the child of promise, believing God was able to raise him from the dead, Hebrews 11, 19. And so there's no question that not only did Abraham believe God, but even the the works generated from his life were of significance. And so if Abraham had earned a right standing before God on account of his works, then he had every reason to boast. And yet Paul rejects the underlying premise, namely that Abraham was justified by works. And he does so at the end of verse two, where he says, but not before God. So the idea is not that though Abraham couldn't boast before God, that he could nevertheless then boast before men. Instead, but not before God is Paul's repudiation that Abraham was even ever justified by works. How do we know? Because of the way verse three begins. It begins with an explanatory four. It gives the reason why Abraham couldn't boast before God. Look at it. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him or credited to him as righteousness. Quoting Genesis 15, 6. And to really appreciate the instantaneousness of this, turn to Genesis 15. You need to see this in context. The nature of the promise, Abraham's response, and the way God responds to Abraham's faith. Now this comes before Abraham has a child. And his wife, Sarah, is barren. So he is childless 
having no one to extend his progeny, no offspring. And so in verse one of Genesis 15, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Verse four, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And God said to him, so shall your descendants be. God was promising that Abraham would have a son and that through that son, his descendants would be multiplied as the stars of heaven. Well, this was significant. Abraham's wife is barren. So this is a a significant promise of God. Abraham would have to believe against faith that this would take place. And yet, verse six, it says, then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. In that moment, in the courtroom of heaven, God's gavel came down and God reckoned Abraham righteous. And what's significant about that isn't only that it took place in an instant, but also that it took place apart from the law and apart from Abraham receiving the sign of circumcision. In fact, it took place apart from works altogether. As it says back in Romans 4, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the idea is not that that Abraham's faith was deemed to be a righteous act in itself, whereby God then counted Abraham righteous on the basis of his faith. No, Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness in the sense that God counted to Abraham a righteousness that didn't inherently belong to him. It was the righteousness of another. It was an alien righteousness that was counted or reckoned to Abraham where he was receiving righteousness, imputed righteousness. And really the word rendered credited or counted is used no less than 11 times in chapter four alone. It's used in chapter four and verse three. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's used in verse four. Now to the one who works, his wage is not counted as a favor, but as what is due. It's used in verse five. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And verse six, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God counts righteousness, notice, apart from works. And verse eight, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not, here it is, take into account. And verse nine, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, Faith was counted to Abraham as righteous. And then again in verse eight, how then was it counted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be counted to them. And then again in verse 22, therefore it was also counted to him as righteousness. And verse 23, now not for his sake only was it written that it was counted to him, verse 24, but but for our sake also to whom it will be counted as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So this whole chapter revolves around the counting 
of righteousness to the sinner. What can we glean from that? That this is all about how righteousness is counted or reckoned or imputed to those who are inherently unrighteous. It's inescapable that one is counted righteous by believing. And the word being used here is the language of accounting or economics, which is why Paul's going to use an illustration just like that in verse 4, where a workman, a workman's wages are counted as that which is due, that which is owed. But in justification, righteousness is counted entirely by grace, whereby God credits a perfect record of righteousness to the sinner's account through believing. Now, did Abraham go on to walk in God-glorifying obedience? Most certainly so. But his obedience didn't add anything to his perfect record of righteousness. You can't improve on perfection. And it goes both ways. Nor did Abraham's disobedience take away from his perfect record of righteousness. And there was disobedience. There was the, the, the going into Hagar and having Ishmael, taking matters into his own hands trying to generate the, the promised child through his own means. Effectively adultery. And there was also lying when he went to Egypt and he told Abimelech, the king, that Sarah was his sister. When in reality, she was also his wife. And so Abraham had disobedience. There was certainly sin in his life, and yet that didn't impact his right standing before God either. Not only did his obedience not add to his perfection, nor did his disobedience take away from his perfection. God counted to him a righteousness alien to him, the righteousness of another. We could even say the righteousness of God simply by believing the promise. And so with that question at the outset of whether or not Abraham went on to walk in God-glorifying obedience, we are back to the relationship between justification and sanctification or justification and obedience. Works definitely do not save. However, Works are evidence of genuine saving faith. And James makes that point in James 2 when he talks about Abraham. That Abraham had a living faith, an active faith, a faith that was not dead, a faith that generated works, not that the works contributed to his right standing before God, but that they vindicated it, that they validated that he was justified. As we often say, we aren't saved by good works, but we are saved for good works, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. In fact, listen to 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 and following, where Paul gives thanks for the Thessalonians. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love. There, Paul is expressing his thanksgiving for a faith that works and a love that labors. Those in Thessalonica had heard the gospel through the preaching of Paul, had believed the gospel, had been declared righteous, counted righteous before God on the basis of their, their or through faith, by grace. And now faith working and love laboring was merely the fruit of a transformed life. And so there's definitely a relationship between justification and sanctification or 
justification and obedience, but there's also a clear line of demarcation. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It takes place in an instant and is irrevocable. But justification will always go on to bear the fruit of righteousness, Philippians 1.11, where a transformed life becomes the fruit of justification. And so when you survey your own life and you consider your own trusting of Christ, are you able to see that your trust in Christ has changed your life? Are you able to see that that you're now walking in newness of life where there is obedience that is being generated in your life as God is working in you, conforming you into Christ's image? Can you see that? Because Abraham simply believed upon God, was declared righteous, by grace alone, through faith alone, but went on to do wonderful things for God, even by the grace of God, as evidence that he had truly been justified. So justification comes through faith, entirely apart from works. Now second, justification comes by grace. Justification comes by grace. And for this, Paul employs the illustration. Look at verse four. He writes, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. Seems straightforward enough. Compensation for work completed isn't a gift, it's an obligation. When you go to work for an agreed upon amount and you do the work and you're compensated for that work, You have earned a wage. What you receive is merited. It's deserved. And so what's the point? That justification's not like that. That works play no part in justification. In fact, the word rendered favor is actually charis. It's the word we typically render grace. And so the LSB renders it like this. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not counted according to grace, but according to what is due, making the point of the illustration inescapable, unmistakable. And Paul brings that up in verse 5 when he says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So, so justification comes from God, to the ungodly entirely through faith. And the contrast is between working and believing, where working relies on your own capacity and whereas believing relies on the capacity of another. And in this case, the the mercy and grace of another. As one commentator writes, working involves doing while the genius of belief is receiving, unquote. So justification is all about receiving an unmerited, perfect record of righteousness, whereby God grants to us what we don't inherently possess in ourselves. And it's not hard to figure out why that would be. How does this text describe us? As ungodly, God justifies the ungodly. And so in ourselves, on our own, apart from grace, we're all ungodly, Abraham included. In fact, Abraham was a pagan idolater who worshipped many gods, the foremost of which was the God of the moon. And so, yes, even Abraham believed in God who justifies the ungodly since he too was ungodly. And really, that God justifies the ungodly is a stunning reality. Listen to Exodus 23, 7. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous. God says, for I will not acquit the guilty. 
So God declares that he will not acquit the guilty. Or Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. And so it's an abomination to the Lord to justify the wicked. And so how can God justify the ungodly without being an abomination? He can do so by a creative act whereby he freely grants the believer a new status, one that fundamentally alters the entire trajectory of his or her life. And God can do this without compromising his justice, having satisfied his wrath in the cross of Christ, making him both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that means this, the imputation runs in two directions. We believe on Christ and are imputed with the righteousness of Christ and our sin is imputed to him, whereby he is the atoning sacrifice for all of the sin that we've ever committed against God. It's the great exchange. In the gospel through faith, we receive the perfect unblemished record of righteousness that belongs to Christ, and he receives from us the record of our sin that he ultimately dealt with at the cross as he suffered under the wrath of God, satisfying divine justice. So justification is entirely apart from works. Works can make no contribution if they did then it would fundamentally alter the very essence of justification. It would cease to be a gift. It wouldn't be for the ungodly, and it wouldn't be by believing. Instead, it would be what is due. It would be for the godly, and it would be by working. It would be by the deeds of the law, the works of the law. And the reality is that there's only one who has ever fulfilled the law in full, and it's who? the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's three important implications that follow from this. Implications that we need to ensure that we grasp and understand to sharpen and clarify this doctrine of justification that comes to us by grace. One is that no one has ever been saved apart from recognizing their own ungodliness. No one has ever been saved apart from recognizing their own ungodliness and recognizing it with a Godward grief and sorrow, with a contrite heart, where you recognize that against God and him only have you sinned, Psalm 51.4. No one, not Abel, not Noah, not Abraham, not Isaac, Not Jacob, not Joseph, not Moses, not Joshua, not Samuel, not David, not the prophets, not the apostles, not anyone in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, not anyone, period. Anyone who has been justified before God by grace through faith has recognized their own ungodliness. And so absolutely essential to being made right with God is recognizing with a contrite heart that you are ungodly, that you have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God and that you are rightly due eternal judgment. The second implication is that Christ didn't merely come to make up the difference. Christ did not come simply to make up the difference to make up the shortfall between your own righteousness and a perfect record of righteousness, as though you have some righteousness in yourself but merely came short of the righteousness you need. No, it's far worse than that. You don't have any righteousness. Any good deeds you've done, God doesn't even recognize. He deems them to be filthy rags, acts of charity, great feats of strength, 
anything that you've done with respect to your family, anything that you've done that you could count on as being something good or praiseworthy, filthy rags in God's sight. He does not recognize that as a deed of righteousness. It does not earn for you any righteousness at all, let alone a perfect record of righteousness. And what's more, not only are you a zero with respect to righteousness, but you also have an infinite debt of sin. A debt so high, not even an eternity of judgment is sufficient payment, which is why it's eternal judgment. And so Christ didn't merely come to make up the difference. He came to be the difference. It's not as though you're at 50% and Christ came to be the, the, the remaining 50. No, you're at zero and Christ is 100 and you need Christ and his righteousness counted to you. And three, the third implication. No one is ever godly apart from grace. No one is ever godly apart from grace. No one. God justifies the ungodly. And if that generates godliness, and it will, that godliness itself is the product of divine grace working in the life of the reforming sinner. The only way to be godly is to be justified through faith in Christ, repudiating any contribution from works, and then growing in the grace and knowledge of him, 2 Peter 3.18. And so God is the source of all godliness. All that is truly godly in the life of the justified goes back to God. We can neither brag about ourselves nor about others. God gets all the glory. And just think about the importance of that. I mean, the Jew boasts in Abraham. They, they, they exalt Abraham. He, he, he's the example of a man who earns his righteousness before God. He, 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 is, he is the supreme example of all that religion ought to secure. And yet if Abraham were here, he would say, no, God justifies the ungodly and any godliness generated in my life is the fruit of God working in me. It's the fruit of God's grace. And so Abraham would be refusing the, the, the reception of all of that praise. And so is that how you see it? That no one is ever saved apart from recognizing their own ungodliness that no one is godly in and of themselves? Have you acknowledged your own ungodliness before God? Have you taken ownership over that, confessed that, acknowledged it before him? And how do you see Christ? Do you see him as one who merely came to make the difference so that you can take the righteousness that you've earned through your deeds and then add Christ to make up 100 and that's what you're gonna offer to God? Or do you recognize that you have nothing no righteousness of your own and therefore need the, the, the full, unvarnished righteousness of Christ. And if you are in Christ and your life is marked by godliness, are you boasting in that? Are you boasting in what you see being generated from your life? Are you taking credit for God's work in you or... Are you recognizing that you can do nothing apart from Christ, that anything being produced in your life is only because you're joined to the true vine and have his life pumping through your spiritual veins, whereby now you're walking in a manner worthy of the gospel by grace, where he gets the glory? This is the right response to understanding that justification comes by grace. So not only does it come through faith, but also by grace. And in either case, to the total exclusion of works. Now third, justification comes with forgiveness. Justification comes with forgiveness. Look at verse six. Paul writes, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And Paul is going to cite 
Psalm 32, verse 1, in the first line of verse 2, which declare the immense blessing that belongs to all those whose sin is forgiving, forgiven rather. And what's amazing about that is that Paul is linking the forgiveness of sin to the imputation of righteousness. Look at what he says here. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. That's the language of imputation, of imputed righteousness. And yet Psalm 32 doesn't herald imputed righteousness. It heralds forgiveness of sin. Sin the Lord will not take into account. And that means that in justification, imputed righteousness and the forgiveness of sin are like two sides of the same coin. On the one side, you have the the, the positive imputation of the righteousness of Christ. And on the other, you have the, the removal of the guilt of sin, the forgiveness of sin. So that in justification, you receive both the forgiveness of sin and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. And so why does Paul cite Psalm 32? Well, because the same word rendered reckoned in Genesis 15, 6, as it relates to Abraham, is used in Psalm 32, 2, and is rendered here in Romans 4, 8, will not take into account and is the same word used throughout this chapter, although here it expresses the opposite reality with respect to a believer's sin, that our sins will not be counted. And so in justification, God counts to us the righteousness of Christ, and he doesn't count against us our sin. And let's be honest. When David penned these words, he did so from experience. David was a man, as we all are, in desperate need of the the, the forgiveness of God, having not only committed the physical act of adultery, but having covered it up through the unlawful death of Uriah, what was effectively murder. And even as David pens these verses, it's, it's likely in connection with that sin and having experienced the grace of God in forgiveness that he pens what he does here. As Paul captures it, verse seven, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So this is pronouncing immense blessing on those whose sin is forgiven. And if you wanna understand the nature of this blessing, consider it in connection with its opposite. What's the opposite of blessing in the Bible? It's cursing. It's to be cursed. And so if you flip this, it would read like this, cursed are those whose lawless deeds haven't been forgiven and whose sins haven't been covered. Cursed is the man whose sin the Lord will in fact will in fact take into account. And it is a curse. I mean, to to not have your sin forgiven means you are under an eternal curse, eternal judgment that will fall if you die without Christ. But to the one who has been forgiven, this psalm pronounces immense blessing. It's the difference between eternal heaven and eternal hell, eternal joy and eternal judgment, eternal life, and eternal death. And three different words are used to depict forgiveness here. The first is forgiven. It means to release from legal or moral obligation or consequence and can be rendered cancel, remit, or pardon, signaling that forgiveness is a release from the consequences of one's guilt before God. It's to be divinely pardoned. The second is covered and means to hide from view by covering and has the sense with respect to our sins of them being put out of God's sight, signaling 
that sins covered points to all our sins being cast into the depths of the sea where God remembers them no more. And the third is rendered not taken into account. And again, is the same word that means counted throughout this chapter. And so in forgiveness, God keeps no record of our wrongs, signaling that sins not taken into account are sins that God has canceled. Colossians 2.14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So in justification, that record of sin that records every sin ever committed and really every sin that will ever be committed is canceled. The entire record of it nailed to the cross of Christ, debt paid in full. And so in justification, we not only receive a perfect record of righteousness, we also receive the forgiveness of sins. We're released from all guilt. Our sins are remembered no more. God will not remember them, will never call them to mind ever again, and the entire record of our sins is completely canceled. That is amazing grace. How blessed are we who are forgiven in Christ? And consider this. This is full and free forgiveness of all sin, past, present, and future. So in justification, you have judicial forgiveness even for sin you haven't yet committed. The entire record debt of your sin is nailed to the cross. Christ atoned for every single sin. It's not as though you come to Christ and are justified and then have to continue confessing your sin to, to contribute to this judicial pardoning you receive from God. No. In justification, the whole thing, the entire certificate of debt that includes sins not yet committed is canceled. Our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103.12. You say, then why do we still need to confess sin? We still need to confess sin, right? Well, if we've received this judicial pardoning for sin, where the entire certificate of debt is nailed to the cross, then why do we still need to confess sin? Because though we've been forgiven judicially, we still need repeated and ongoing forgiveness relationally. You say, why? To restore the, the sweetness of our fellowship with God. That's why Jesus exhorts us to pray, our Father who is in heaven, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, Matthew 6, 12. Not because we lack forgiveness of sin in justification, but because we need the forgiveness of sin in sanctification. And so when we confess sin, this side of justification, it isn't in relation to God as judge. The gavel has already dropped. The judicial pardoning's already been given. Now we come to him as his children and we approach him as our heavenly father. And we come and we acknowledge our sin and confess our sin to be restored to effective service to have the sweetness of our fellowship with him be renewed. And scripture promises us that if we confess our sins, we will receive this forgiveness. First John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a promise. That by coming before God in humble repentance and confessing our sin to him, he washes us and cleanses us afresh as we live between our justification and future final glorification. 
continuing to wrestle with the flesh that is in us. And so this is lavish and extravagant forgiveness, judicial forgiveness for every sin that you've ever committed or will ever commit and also fatherly forgiveness as you seek to walk and grow in sanctification. God has generously provided forgiveness at every point of the Christian life. And so a question is, how lavish should our forgiveness be if we've received such lavish and extravagant forgiveness, both in justification and even as we walk between it and glorification, how lavish should our forgiveness be? Ephesians 4.32 says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And so our forgiveness ought to be just as lavish as the forgiveness that we've received. We're to forgive as we've been forgiven. And so it's with that presented before you today, this this glorious, wonderful, and blessed forgiveness that I ask you, are you withholding forgiveness from anyone today? Is there anyone that you are harboring an offense against? Listen to what Jesus says. This comes in Matthew 6, 14 and 15. So just a couple of verses after the exhortation to ask God for forgiveness, he says, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. So what's he saying? That we have to forgive others to be justified, that we have to extend forgiveness to everyone in our life before we can be made right with God? Not a chance. That would make justification a wage to be earned. So what's he saying? He's saying that your heavenly father will withhold from you the daily forgiveness you need to enjoy the sweetness of his fellowship if you withhold forgiveness from others. Which means that if you're withholding forgiveness, you're doing so to your own harm. You're harming your own spiritual growth, your own spiritual life. Unforgiveness that typically generates bitterness is kryptonite to the inner man. Kryptonite to spiritual growth and development. And so if you are withholding forgiveness from anyone, today if you would hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I exhort you to release them of the offense. There may be situations where you can't express that forgiveness to them horizontally because they're not repentant, that's fine. But Jesus nevertheless exhorts us to pray vertically, forgiving everyone of any offense against us. And so we can go before God in prayer and we can release anyone who has wronged us before God, having a heart then ready to be reconciled to that individual the moment they make the first step to come toward us. And so let your forgiveness be as lavish as God's is. So what have we seen? We've seen that justification comes through faith. Apart from works, though works are its fruit. That justification comes by grace. Again, apart from works, and requires a recognition of our own ungodliness. And we've also seen that justification comes with forgiveness. Again, apart from works where imputed righteousness and the forgiveness of sin are really two sides of the same coin. And so the 
the ultimate question is this. Have you received this justification? Have you been imputed with the righteousness of Christ? Can you claim Psalm 32, 1 and 2 is yours? And the the immense blessing for those whose sin is forgiven. Do you have a right standing before God? Have you been reconciled to him through his son? What an opportunity to to be reconciled to God. To come under the, the, the authority of scripture and confess what is true. What God says concerning your condition. That you are under condemnation that you are under sin, both its penalty and its power, that you need liberty, freedom from the power of sin and, and, and forgiveness from the penalty of sin. And if you would look to Christ, the one whom God sent into the world to, to live the life that you couldn't and to then die the death that you deserve, and if you were to, to believe on him, looking to him alone for everything you need to stand holy and blameless before God, rejecting and repudiating every hint of your own righteousness and all works, then upon believing in him, the divine gavel will come down in the court of heaven and you will be declared righteous, both instantly and irrevocably, and will be imputed with the righteousness of Christ, having a a full record of righteousness and total forgiveness of sin. Then being reconciled to God to walk in a manner worthy of him, to to see God's grace generate in your life the fruit of obedience where you would give God praise and glory, not just for justification, but even for your spiritual growth and development. And you have full confidence That if you were to breathe your last breath this day, that the moment that you are absent from the body, you would be present with the Lord and in his presence from then on through all eternity. And so who would reject that? Who would want to cling to the misery of their sin and reject the Lord of glory? Believe on him this day and be reconciled to God. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we are so grateful for all that we've looked at today. What an amazing reality that we can have reconciliation with you, be counted righteous before you, have the entire record of our sin canceled, and then begin to to live the blessing of eternal life now, where we would live life knowing you and knowing your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, having been raised to newness of life, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, yes, imperfectly, but nevertheless, directionally, unto true and abiding righteousness. Father, you have blessed us so richly. And so we give you praise. And we pray that we would all understand the glory and the depths of this wonderful doctrine of justification, being firmly rooted in it, that we as a church would be powerful, effective, and fruitful as we serve you for your glory. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.